But the thing that really pissed me off is that you're basically selling an actively managed product, but you don't have the audacity or the courtesy to actually let your customers know that there's a big currency change and that we're kind of rebalancing the portfolio to address this. No, nobody actually told you. And I just found out by chance that my investment has lost a lot of money. And when I asked them, they were like, yeah, you know what? You just got to wait. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts of A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Philip Christian DeConer. Philip, are you ready to rock? Absolutely. All right. Philip is a keynote TEDx speaker, a global innovation strategist, and author of the Trust Economy, which has been published in English, German, and Chinese most recently. Philip has spoken at eminent global organizations such as Facebook, Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, Turner, Munich Re, Zillow, Globe, CPA Australia, German Federal Ministry for Economics and Energy, Economist Intelligence Unit, and many others. He's written for Forbes, Esquire, E27, Marketing Mag, an InVision blog, plus several industry publications and featured across Springer Professional, Men's Portfolio, Money FM 89.3, and Your Story. Philip is also founding partner of DDX, an award-winning German innovation foundry, helping companies innovate the most trusted products and services. In his free time, he's an avid sailor and yogi. Philip, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Sure. I think what I noticed in spending almost a decade now working across different innovation disciplines is that it's very hard to affect change. And also that sort of trust is essential whenever you're trying to do something interesting or new. And in fact, that the world changes when trust patterns shift. So when we suddenly trust in something new, that's when it actually becomes real. And what I love about trust, especially uh, when it comes to financial markets and the overall sentiment that we have about something, is that our trust in the way the world works actually determines which things change and which things stay the same. So if you've ever wondered why this pesky old technology is still around, it's because for some reason it's managed to remain trusted. And if you're wondering why something new that is actually not very good is on the block, it's also because we've somehow given it our trust. So that's really fascinating. And I think it's very, very relevant when it comes to investing good or, or, or bad. Yeah, that's very fascinating. In fact, for the listeners, just look down at your computer and see your keyboard. It's not the most efficient thing, but we trust that it can help us to communicate and get our message into the computer. And it hasn't been changed. So I like the fact that you highlight how trust is the key to change, whether it's a positive or a negative change. If we lose trust in something, that causes a big change too. So, well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. The story is that I've been relatively active in the Singapore startup scene. So those listening from Singapore, they might, they might have heard the name or maybe not. If not, this is me. But as part of that, I've worked with a bunch of startups also in the fintech space. And one of them is a robo-advisor. They're called Smartly, and we help them launch in Singapore as you know, one of the sort of pioneers of like a more interesting fintech products. So I had a lot of trust in that proposition, and I knew the guys. I felt they were doing really well, and I've invested with them, and that all went really well. So I thought, hey, you know what? Robo-advisors are actually indeed doing something that's really interesting. And more often than not, you know, it felt like it felt a lot more contemporary and interesting and relevant to me than investing my money with a bank. Because 
We all know that banks' incentives are not aligned to yours. And having worked in finance for a couple of years, I was very well aware of how it works on the inside. So looking at Singapore and thinking that there was not that much available that was easy to manage, I thought, okay, there's also other robo-advisors that I could try. And there was this one new robo-advisor that sort of came on board and also launched in Singapore. And they have a very sleek interface, you know, they talk a big game. And I thought, hey, actually, you know what? Their digital product, the interface is actually very good. Now, if you know my kind of stuff, um, I write a lot about how digital interfaces are actually attracting all the trust nowadays. And unfortunately or fortunately, we actually put a huge amount of trust in digital interfaces. And so I did in this case as well. I put quite a lot of money into that robo-advisor because indeed they did talk a good game and I thought, okay, they can't be that bad if somebody else is doing a good job. So I stashed my money there. Uh, maybe you now kind of have a rough idea of who this might be. And um, at the end of the day, you know, their claim was, we're going to take care of everything. That's kind of why we charge you a fee. We're going to basically actively manage your portfolio. And then sort of I got around to the fact that when I actually started reading the investment framework, it was really a lot of, a lot of fairy tale. There was not much substance to it. And I started digging into a little bit deeper. And then there was a point where there was currency correction. So as you know, like you know, if you invest in US dollar and the US dollar changes, that might actually significantly affect your investment. In my case, it affected it by... I don't know, several grand, which I wasn't very comfortable with. But the thing that really pissed me off is that you're basically selling an actively managed product, but you don't have the audacity or the courtesy to actually let your customers know that there's a big currency change and that we're kind of rebalancing the portfolio to address this. No, nobody actually told you. And I just found out by chance that my investment has lost a lot of money. And when I asked them, they were like, yeah, you know what? You just got to wait. But the interesting thing is, I wasn't buying something that was passive. I was buying something that had the claim of being sophisticated, driven by technology, and about active investing. And at the end of the day, until, I don't know, years later, that sort of, that exchange rate had not returned to where it was beforehand. So at the end of the day, I don't think that it's fair or, or trustworthy if you actually tell somebody you're actively taking care of their portfolio, and then you don't. And it's also not kind of all right if you have a very sleek interface to have a crappy investment framework backing it and then sort of kind of, you know, exude this, this trust purely in the sleekness of your communication online. But it did realize for me very clearly, not just a significant loss, but also the insight that I trust digital interfaces way too much. I don't have time or interest in really doing my research. And I believe people who say that they know what they're doing. And probably that trust surplus in this case has actually cost me a lot of money. But it's very interesting because I think I'm not the only one. I'm sure you're not. So if you look at what you, uh, this story, how would you describe the lessons that you learned from this experience? So the first thing is that just because one company is doing really well, in this case, you know, I was biased. Like the company that we brought in, of course, I thought highly of them. But in actual fact, they did perform well. And interestingly enough, on the asset management side, they partner with an established firm. So they kind of knew what they were doing. And actually, if you look at the performance of their investments, they were very well aware of what was going on in the markets. And they took precautions to make sure that it didn't affect the actual investment. On the other hand, you have a startup that's very ambitious, highly funded, and they don't really care about your money. They actually just care about making money. They care about growing. And you realize that unless you really understand a company's motivations do not at all align just because they say that they have a fancy interface and they say they have a fancy investment team and they say they're all really smart, you know, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the truth. 
And I knew this beforehand, but I only realized that when I had put a huge chunk of money into something that had absolutely no proof points. Great lessons there. In fact, the, the lesson that we saw in the US was the long-term capital management um, fund that collapsed that was had two Nobel laureates on the, the board of yep. the company. And it teaches us that, you know, uh, first of all, it's one of the reasons why, let's say in the investment community, people are asking for a three-year track record, in some cases a five-year track record, because yep. they want to understand how you've handled these types of downturns. And I think it's, it's an important lesson as I look at it, as I summarize kind of what I take away from your story, there's a couple of points. I think the main thing is to understand what's behind the presentation. Everybody's got great presentations these days, but yep. what's yep. the methodology behind it? And then I think most importantly, even more important than that is what is their risk management plan? And that means that they would have looked at, these are all the different risks that we believe you're exposed to. Now in the world of finance, what ends up happening is people take a, a boiler template and say, okay, you'll be exposed to foreign exchange risk as an example. And then they present that to say, hey, don't ask us because, you know, that you accepted that risk. But to say, ask yeah. the question that we want to ask is, so what have you done when that risk appeared or what do you plan to do when that risk arrives? And so for all the listeners out there, that's a, a big piece of advice I would give you when you're looking at the performance of anybody who's coming to you and saying, put your money with us focus not so much on the return, but focus on the risk and what have they done in the past and what would they do if this happened? And so that was, that's what I would take away. Would you add anything uh, to that? I think the interesting thing is that I'd invested a little bit with the people I knew and it had went very well. So I had a positive experience and I basically put them in the same bucket. They're a robot advisor, they invest in ETFs, all US dollar denominated. Seems like a very simple investment, but I put a lot of money in that because at the time I thought, okay, you know what? I'm just double down on it, try some more, you know, because at, at the end of the day, it just seemed like a next logical step. But of course I was like, this is actually a different company, you know? And the other thing that, that maybe one of the biggest kind of things that, that actually swayed me as well was that they got a CMS retail license in a matter of months. And at the end of the day, if you think about that, that usually means that at least the company kind of knows what they're doing and kind of knows kind of how to get around things. But that had nothing to do with their ability to actually make proper investments. In the, the problem with certain companies that are new in the fintech space is that, you know, often enough, actually, we are so used to them and technology overall making our lives better. So when it comes to something that's as complicated as investing, and when it comes to like large sums of money, we just think, okay, you know, these guys will figure it out. Technology will figure it out. But at the end of the day, if there is no substance behind it, it's not just about I guess, being cautious, but it's about how can we actually really understand and do due diligence on something that we can't really fathom, you know? How can we really know whether a company actually does those things? And then I also discovered that they were doing fake reviews on Google because, like, I think they asked their employees to review them. And it just kind of made me think that my initial trust hypothesis for this company was very positive because of my previous experience with a similar company. But then I realized that it was completely unwarranted and that company was basically just aggressively growing uh, without looking left, right or center and most certainly without caring about its customers. So mm. that sort of really got to me. And right. it, it became, so I became, I was a big advocate of most robo-advisors before and I just became so bitter about it that whenever somebody actually talks highly about them, I just kind of let them know this has been my experience. So be careful, you know, and I don't do business with companies that fake reviews. End of story. Great points. And I think the, uh, 
you know, what we can see too is that we're so familiar with our phone, your own personal phone, yep. that we're so familiar with the interface of that phone, with the apps that are being presented to us on, our, on that phone, that it's easy to fall for what I call misplaced trust, that we misplace trust and we think that what's behind that app we can trust. And I think that uh, leads into, you know, what you've talked about a lot in your book and other things is about the, the concept of trust. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn in your life, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? The honest answer is that if you do your research yourself and it seems all too sleek and too perfect, it probably isn't, right? It's like, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. And I think that's, unfortunately, in a world where everything's served to us, like at the minute, nobody seems to want to actually do the research. But I think the wisdom of the crowd does apply. So if you ask a bunch of people who know about investing, at some point you'll get a consensus on what this thing is actually like. But you do have to make that effort. And I think everybody has those people available in their circles. Mm. You just need to ask enough people to get a relatively good read of whether this company is legit or not. You don't have to necessarily mull over 15,000 pages of theory. But the other thing, I guess, and this is sort of maybe more a question of leverage, if you do high-risk investing, and maybe high-risk is not just about high return. High-risk is also about investing with somebody that you don't know. You start with small batches. You make the assumption that, okay, the small batch of money might give me a high return, but I might have a risk of losing quite a lot, potentially losing my shirt. And then I still have my kind of conservative, known, relatively safer investment where I put the bulk of what I actually want to invest. And I think that that's ultimately always a safer way because until somebody has proven themselves, unfortunately, you really don't know, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's fantastic. I like the idea of what we would call position size and you build a slow, yep. small position into something. And this is, a, this is a risk management tool. So great advice on that one. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Philip, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for our audience? I think actually like when you reached out to me and said, you know, you probably don't want to talk about it. I was like, no, I actually love talking about my worst investment because it taught me a lot. And I actually feel by having gone through that, in a way, kind of really got me thinking in a new form of my research, which is about the power of interfaces and actually taking trust away from physical interactions and kind of digitizing that trust. And this has both positive and negative implications. But for me, at the end, trust is kind of like that force, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. But it's very fascinating to look at every company as that, you know, how well they're building trust and whether they are trusted and trustworthy is not the same thing. So I think with investments, there is always a difference between trustworthy players and trusted players. But unfortunately for you know, the trustworthy players, you also have to be trusted to actually make money. So some people just choose to be only trusted but not trustworthy. And at the end of the day, from losing a couple grand worth of money, I actually realized that I gained a lot of insight into my topic. So at the end of the day, I don't mind sharing about it. And I think it's only fair. Fantastic. Well, for those of you that want to continue your knowledge and deepen your knowledge of trust and the, the role that it plays, 
check out Philip's book as well as all the contributions that he is making in that space. I will put in the show notes the links to your websites and other stuff and resources so people can check that out. So, well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.